Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST58, the final Minuteman studio album, Three Way Tie for Last. It's not an album I go back to often, honestly, out of the, the Minuteman records. It's a heartbreaker. It's a really political record. I'm really happy that I, I took the time to listen to it again this week, Brent. Me too, man. I would say the same thing. I've heard the record lots, but it's not one that's really stuck with me. But man, it's really good. And I mean, I've, again, I've had this album for a really long time and I forgot how, how good it is. I maybe wrote it off for the production, which is not as bad as I maybe thought it was. Uh, but we'll get to all of that. But yeah, I really liked listening to it this week. Yeah. And it was a good reminder. If I'm being honest, I probably will go back to it a bit more after this week, but I still won't go back to it as much as I do the other ones, just keeping it real. Anyways, Brent, I wondered if you had any spiels for the dudes and uh, dudettes. Yeah, I have a few. Well, of interest to our listeners, I guess our friend Joseph Pope sent me an email with a link to a, a WFMU broadcast that he did, I think it was in 2016, it was him and Joe Carducci. Joe Carducci has done that, I think it's the same radio show, several times, or he's been on WFMU uh, several times, and all their shows are archived. Uh, this particular show is called J.A. in the A.M. with John Allen, and it's the Systematic Special. If you remember, obviously, uh, Joe Carducci, I don't know, did he start Systematic? I can't recall. Yeah. I can't recall. Yeah. Well, he ran it for many years before he we went to SST, and Joseph Pope kind of took it over, I think, and they were there briefly at the same time. But it's it's a four-hour show, and it's kind of the history. They go through the history of independent distribution from, like, 1978 to 88. There's all kinds of bands that they play, like... Uh, stuff that was distributed by systematic like early singles it's really interesting because you know you and i grew up in the 80s so we kind of you know remember the days of having to seek things out and like tape trading and and stuff like that like the, the links these guys went to to find this is even pre-punk you know or i think uh, joe has a phrase that he throws off that i really like carducci he says we were looking for uh stuff that wasn't quite punk like a lot of out there bands like uh, human hands and bee people and monitor smegma bands like that and he okay. like you know traveling overseas and stuff to find these these singles and bring them bring them back as imports the you know the lengths those guys would go to to, to track stuff down and looking up record stores in the phone book and like writing them letters you know yeah and you know they talk about uh Rough Trade, Faulty Product, a little bit later, the starting of Mordam, uh, Wax Tracks, they play a bunch of bands, talk about, you know, Wipers, uh, they play a really great Reign of Terror track, remember Ed Danke? Oh yeah. I don't know, it's really good, we'll post a link to it, everyone should uh, should check it out. Yeah, I want to check that out. I, I mean, when, when I was growing up in the 80s, and still very much into punk into the 90s and into the 2000s the 80s and 90s though when i was getting into it the equivalent for me of that was you know if you were lucky 
on a family vacation going to a slightly larger city and begging to go to the record store in that city. That's one. Yep. And two. I did, I did lots of that. Yeah. And same with you, like tape trading and stuff like that. Or three, for me, um, I used to send in like my want lists. I can't remember what it cost, like five bucks or something like that, and get it put in the back of Maximum Rock and Roll and buy and sell tapes or singles or whatever through the back of Maximum Rock and Roll. So I can relate, but in a very different way. Yeah. I don't know. It's just a good reminder of, you know, when you really had to search for stuff. Yep. I'm still searching, but it's a lot easier these days. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was I watched a documentary today called Here to be Heard, the Story of the Slits. Oh, that'd be interesting. It's uh, it's pretty good. I don't know. It's uh, I, I'll admit I'm not the biggest fan of the Slits. Neither am I. I. I appreciate what they accomplished. It's an interesting story. It's a good documentary. I would recommend it. Right on. I'll check that out. I definitely will. I'm I'm in the same boat as you. Like it's not my music, but I appreciate it for the history for sure. Yeah. That's all I had. What do you have this week, Ryan? You know, I had this weird thought in my head uh, when I was preparing for this episode, and it, it my spiel is way from out of left field. I hope you're ready for this. Oh, I was born ready. It kind of has to do with the post that we uh, put up for our one year anniversary where people thought that uh, the picture of me, like I would be, I guess the metal guy or, or Brandt or something like that. And okay. how, and how you truly are the metal guy. You're the guy with the Alice Cooper and Judas priest tattoos. And that's not me, but I do have a healthy appreciation for some metal. And it just occurred to me this week for some reason, I started listening to this band again on my iPod on the train in to and from work. Okay. And I was like, I don't think I've actually ever talked about this band with Brent and that's Danzig. Oh yeah. So here's, here's my question for you. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm always ready for a Danzig question, man. Okay. So what Danzig do you like? Uh, the first two for sure. Yeah. Uh, the first three, How the Gods Kill is also really wicked. And the fourth one's all right. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm good. <laughs> That's it? Okay. That's about okay. it. Okay, so I essentially ended up, and, and we we might as well get the Misfits out of the way. Misfits, good, yes? Yep, yep Misfits, good. Sam, Sam Hain, Hain, yeah, I could Sam. take them or leave them. Some, but not tons. Yep. Let's be honest. Yep. Let's be honest, okay? You can, you can, you can go right from the Misfits to the first four Danzig records and be just fine. Yeah. But here's what I did this week on the train. I listened to, I don't know how many it is, like 10 or 11 Danzig records. It goes Danzig 1, wow. 2, 3, 4, 5, and then 666, Satan's Child, of course. Yep. And then 777, I, Luciferi, or Luciferi, I don't know. Ugh. Circle of Snakes, Dead Red Sabbath, skeletons and black laden crown right so i listened to all of those in order skeletons and, is the cover covers one right yeah yeah that, that one's and all right it's okay yeah you know what and you know i saw danzig live a couple of years ago and it was it was pretty terrible yeah um he, the, the, he can't really sing anymore right eh? 
Well, I mean, it's the, here's my here's the thing. You you know me and pinched harmonics. <laughs> John Christ not- is like the. <laughs> he's like uh, well, he's he doesn't do it as as much as Zach Wild, which really gets under my skin. But yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. Well, John Christ doesn't do it as much as the other guy who came on guitar forever with uh with danzig and i can't remember what his name is is it like uh, tommy victor or something like yeah. that yeah he was in prong yeah the pinched harmonics on those danzig records are absolutely ridiculous but this week i finally could see through the pinched harmonics <laughs> <laughs> and um you know what i am going to commend to you to uh to check out the other seven or so danzig records there are some great songs and the last one that out of the last like seven or eight after their first four i went back to the album called uh death red sabbath that's a really good record all right check it out okay yeah i I hear you on the harmonics i i cannot stand listening to zach wilde play like randy rhodes and even worse black sabbath material it just drives me insane yeah like dude fuck off with the harmonics yeah, just, already just stop it yeah. and that's and you know what like i do feel that way about john christ on the first four but it it still is like it's infrequent enough that i get way past it and plus the production on those first three in particular and then with chuck biscuits on drums you just can't deny the power of those records oh yeah anyways it's awesome that's it. I had to get that off my chest because I don't think we've ever had a heart to heart about Danzig. So yeah. there you go. Okay. Whoo. Are you uh, are you ready to get into three way? Yeah, man. Tie for last. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna start that over again because I think it sounded a little pornographic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's enough Danzig. How about we get into three way tie for last? Let's do that. History lesson part one. As I said at the top, Brent, and uh, I'm happy to hear you kind of say the same thing, like not a favorite Minuteman record, but happy to go back into it and do a bit of a deep dive. And and I said, it's a heartbreaker. We'll get to that. I mean, it's no secret that this is the last album that the Minutemen put together in the studio because D. Boone, I think D. Boone passed away the week this record was released, in fact, in December of 85. So... Mm this record is a heartbreaker in that way and it's funny when i was when i was listening to it after researching about it and then listening to it and it all kind of sinking in that this record was released the week that Boon passed away all the songs had like a way different meaning to me for the first time ever and especially after the uh, the Linda Kite interview that we did on My First Bells because she it's funny how much she mentioned in that interview there was a thread of it in so many of these songs especially the D Boone side so it uh, this album struck me way different than in the past so it was really cool yeah but it's a really weird Minutemen record again when you read uh, the Craig Abera book A Wailing of a Town this record doesn't get much airtime, and most of the airtime in the book is quotes from Mike Watt talking about how he doesn't really, it's like his least favorite record. Mm. He talks about how 
there wasn't really much interplay between the band members and how basically, you know, Watt basically says D Boone brought all the good songs and he didn't bring much good material. And George, I I disagree with that, but I I mean, I, I read a few things that where people were kind of like D Boone was checked out when they recorded this and, and Watt had to do some of the heavy lifting for this album. Yeah. Well, the way that Watt describes it in a whaling of a town is that they were, they were not really feeling, I guess, just super pumped at that point when they were recording it in the summer of 85. And he, he describes it as, you know, bands go through peaks and valleys. And when they were recording this, they were in a valley. So that's kind of aligned with, with D Boone being kind of checked out. I didn't read that. I, I didn't find anything that said that most of the stuff that I read was Watt just talking about how the band was not operating in the same way that they had in the past, like where the instruments would be talking with each other, they would be writing with each other. They kind of brought, and that's why there's the Mike side and the D Boone side. And, um, it's just a very different, uh, type of record. And, and D Boone, in uh, a whaling of a town comments about how they made like a conscious effort to uh, to make a rock record hmm. and uh, well, the songs are way longer than any other album they've done well i guess they were kind of headed this direction on the uh project mersh a little bit but like I think so interesting like you know double nickels was such a creative burst and then this album is probably close to half of it is covers you know five of them yeah Five of the songs are covers, which is which is crazy, and almost every D Boone song is about war. Yeah, and, he was definitely uh, going in that direction. Like, I think the A side of this is kind of where the Minutemen or D Boone were headed. I mean, I don't know, you know, how much longer the band would have stayed together. Maybe another twenty years. I have no idea, but. I feel like when I listen to the A side of this album, I kind of feel like that's the direction they were gonna go almost more folk yeah almost so uh, yeah no i know it's 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 odd it's also worth noting too that watt i mean he's getting together with kira at this time kira contributes on the record and watt starts up dose with kira in october of 85 as well so they record this record and um they do a couple of tours watt stop starts up dose and we'll get it probably get a bit more into the tours and then boom like D Boone's gone. So it just feel, just felt really sudden diving into this record this week. It's, uh, it's, I'm happy we did it, but I have a bit of a bit of a knot in my stomach because of it still. Yeah. I mean, as far as like the, you said the word folk and like the politics, if you go back to the Linda kite episode, which is episode 32, my first bells, I, she talks a bit about like both of them really getting into politics, you know, I mean, they always were a political band, but pretty heavily. But like activism, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's one thing to be political, but they were bringing in speakers and and putting on uh, fundraisers and all sorts of stuff like that. So it was a big deal. And I I haven't went back to uh, re-listen to the Linda Kite episode uh, this week, but I seem to recall... I think she was talking about D Boone's brother coming back from war too, right? Yep. Oh, I we'll get to it when we talk talk about the album. But yeah, the, the lyrics uh, in uh, the first track are very I, I, autobiographical. Yep, for sure. 
You mentioned uh, Dose, Ryan. I wrote a little thing about about that. As you mentioned, they started in the fall of 85. Mike Watt, I don't know if you said this, but it's pretty well known. Mike Watt and Kira were dating, had started dating, I think, in 85 and would uh, be married shortly after this, I believe. She had moved to New Haven, Connecticut to attend Yale, and they were sending cassettes back and forth. And uh, in, in September of 86, Kira flew to California to record the first Dose album, which was released on New Alliance Records. And they played their first show with Gone, who we'll be getting to in a couple weeks here. And I think uh, the Dose album is one of the last releases on New Alliance before uh, Mike Watt and Martin Tamburovich sold it to Greg Ginn. They sold it in 1987, and I looked up on Discogs, and uh, the Dose uh, album is New Alliance 32, and then the Criminy 7-inch is New Alliance 33. That also came out in 86, and then Nothing in 87, and then Phantom Opera, Lives of Violence uh, in 88, and The Coachman Failed to Thrive is the next one, etc. But they didn't release anything in 87, and I think that's when Mike Watt sold it. Early next year, I think our first episodes, if we keep <laughs> going weekly, will be the first uh, New Alliance releases re-released on SSD. Oh, that'll be cool. A couple compilations. So we'll be talking about more about New Alliance, but Dose does play a part in the writing of this album, for sure. Yeah, well... I mean, there are there's some playing by Watt on this record that sounds a lot like Dose when yeah. he's kind of he's doubling over himself. Yeah, I, I picked up on that too. Before we get any further into Three Way Tie, Ryan, I want to talk about SST in general because to me, you know, you hear a lot of the quotes um, from people that were there talking about how this was kind of a change happened after D Boone passed away. I was thinking about uh, our interview with Abe Gibson, which was on the Blasting Concept episode, if anyone wants to go back. And he kind of talks about like the three eras of SST. Yeah, yeah. When he's talking about how he got into SST, he was not an Era 1 guy, right? Yeah. I kind of feel like we're coming to the end of Era 1 here. You know, Husker Du is off the label, Black Flag is done, and the Minutemen are done. The big three. They were the anchors for sure. Yep. And, you know, now we're getting into next week, Sonic Youth, Bad Brains, Dinosaur Jr., kind of the second era. And, you know, Greg Ginn's coming off the road. He's going to have a big hand in kind of taking the reins at the label. And uh, I kind of wrote some stuff about this. So bear with me here. Spiel it for the dudes and do deaths. I will. I found a Vice article. Uh, with Mugger, where he was getting interviewed about the Nig heist, but it kind of went into a whole bunch of stuff. And here's a quote uh, from Mugger talking about kind of this time. And he says, At that point, it was kind of like me and Joe versus Ginn and Dukowski, meaning that there were two factions. To put a record out, we all had to agree on it. Some of the music that Ginn started to put out, he just said, I'm going to put this out. And at that point, he started his own record label called Cruise because there was some tension between us. He wouldn't even talk to us. Ginn's vision was much different from our vision. They wanted to put out stuff like Always August and Zoog's Rift, and I always wanted to stick more with bands like Sonic Youth. 
There were certain bands that I wanted to sign, and they didn't. One was Suicidal Tendencies. We could have signed them. I thought that was interesting. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Suicidal Tendencies, like, their first album came out in, like, 83, and they didn't put out their second album until 87. So they basically, mm. like, split up or went on hiatus for, you know, five years. They couldn't play any gigs in LA's, in LA because uh, the violence was so bad. They were basically banned from playing. They could, promoters couldn't get any insurance to hire, hire suicidal tendencies. So out of curiosity, I looked up what the first release on Cruise was because I didn't know off the top of my head, and it's All Roy Says. That came out in 88. So That's a wicked album. Yeah. Oh, man. So good. I asked Joe when Mugger left. I know we've talked about when... Joe Carducci left before, but I didn't know when Mugger left, and he said, I guess you could say it was gradual. One year after I left in 86, Mugger sold his share and was no longer an owner. He said it was always two versus one on what to do, so he became just an employee in 87, probably running the accounts and still going to night school. He may have stopped working full-time in 89, but was still involved for another few years, maybe totally out in 92. That, that surprised me. Yeah. That he was there so long. Yeah, I wasn't aware that he was there that long. Interesting. But, I mean, they probably couldn't have found a better, a better, more trustworthy accountant, I guess. Yeah. And uh, speaking of WFMU interviews, this is one I've talked about before. When uh, Joe Carducci and Mugger on, were on together, I think the program was called Diane's Kamikaze Fun Zone or something like that. Uh, they're both getting interviewed, and I, I wrote this down a long time ago, so I'm not sure who kind of said what, but whether it was Joe or Mugger, but the, the general notion was, you know, when Joe and Mugger were running things, especially when Flag was touring, they were running it like a machine, very focused, but then the two camps split, like physically, in different locations, and uh, when Flag came off the road, you know, some crazy ideas started coming in. Joe specifically says Greg learned a lot fighting Unicorn in the courts in 82, 83, and it changed him. Mm. So Ryan, I thought this would be a good time to talk about D Boone's passing and kind of a lot of people say that that was, things changed at SST for them after that. And I found some really good quotes from some people. Stevie Chick in Spray Paint the Walls. Yeah. D. Boone's death sent a dark shockwave through the SST community, and a number identify this as the beginning of their estrangement from the label and the group. And uh, here's a quote from Dave Markey in Spray Paint the Walls. That was when SST lost its momentum. Hmm. It had a spiraling, rippling effect that eventually turned into a vortex, which sucked everything away. He talks about Firehose, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., and some of the other great bands that were still to come. Uh, but then he says, but things were changing. It couldn't ever be the same. At that point in time, there was always this circle of headcase stoners that were around working for SST. Suddenly, those guys were all fired, and they hired all these va uh, college interns. Here's another uh, Dave thing that I found on his website, wegotpower.com, or wegotpowerfilms.com, sorry, in reference to the 86 tour which started like a week after D. Boone passed away. And he talks a little bit about how that was really a backdrop to that tour. Like a cloud hanging over it, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm talking about the, the Black Flag Painted Willie Gone tour. Yeah, no doubt. 
Uh, Dave says, it cast a dark shadow on the tour. Everyone was severely thrown. For scores of dates that year, many who attended would come backstage to express their grief. In addition to being my all-time favorite guitarist, he was a super sweet guy. Yeah, you know, there's that one scene in We Jam Econo, right? When Watt is talking about his passing and Ian Mackay, he kind of holds up that little chip of paper that Henry Rollins sent him. Mm -hmm. That has like the note about his passing on it. Right. I mean, it's a pretty pretty heart-wrenching actually it's pretty striking yeah you know it it would have been a, a huge deal because he had a a very important and influential presence so it would have i have no doubt that it would have um been a huge deal i mean every december right around the same time um if it's not the same day it's like one day back to back it's like the, the day that d boone passed away and the day that Joe Strummer passed away, for me, that's the day that the music died, right? You know, it's yeah. that's the uh, the type of stuff that strikes me to my core. And I can just imagine if I was one of his contemporaries, it would be a killer, man. Yeah. Some of the best stuff I found uh, was from Tom Tricoli. Can I read you a few of the things he wrote? Yeah, for sure. This was written in 1995. He got asked to do a thing for, I can't remember, but like a newspaper or something about, I think about the anniversary of Dee's death. Don't quote me on that. Uh, first, he tells a really great story about the first time he saw the Minutemen. He was like, his girlfriend wanted to go see the Blasters, I think it was. He, so he just went and the Minutemen were opening up. He didn't know who they were. <laughs> and uh, he's describing them. He's, he describes each member and then he, he gets to Dee Boone. He says, the third guy, first and foremost, was huge. Not tall, but wide. He was grunting and puffing up a storm, moving his gear around. He was tuning up his guitar, a beat-to-shit Les Paul Jr., whose abbreviated size looked positively ridiculous against the mass of the player. For a volume knob, this guitar was equipped with what appeared to be a light dimmer switch, which in fact is what it turned out to be. <laughs> and a cut-out piece of tin for a pickguard. In his white dress shirt with torn off sleeves and khaki cutoffs, this guy actually looked a little bit scary. And he, he goes on to tell a, a really great story about like the music kicking in and, you know, D Boone doing what he did, which is just put everything into the music and, you know, Tom was completely blown away by it, you know, totally floored. And then later on in in the article he says about D Boone's passing, he says Truthfully, I still think of Dennis every single day. I used to think maybe I was obsessing and perhaps it was just me, but I can tell you honestly that Dee is thought of on a daily basis by absolutely everyone he was close with. His heart, love, and music affected us all so profoundly. And uh, then he tells a story about running into an old girlfriend of his who he hadn't seen in many years, and they, they immediately began uh, reminiscing about Dee Boone. And a, a third friend was there and overheard what they were saying and asked if, you know, this D. Boone guy was really as, as special as they were making him sound. And Tom Tricoli says, without a pause, we answered in unison, he changed my life. Powerful stuff. Yeah. And you read lots of stories about, um, again, this is from the WFMU interview. Mugger tells a story about when D. passed away. Apparently a lot of the SST workers were Mexican and, uh, 
Dee's girlfriend, Linda Kite, and her sister, Janine, uh, who was also the mail order person, was their, like, interpreter. And Mugger couldn't tell the workers what happened, so he got his Spanish-speaking mom on the phone uh, to tell everyone. And, it, like, obviously it happened right before Christmas, and Joe Carducci was in Illinois visiting family, and Mugger didn't want to ruin his Christmas, so he didn't tell him that Dee Boone passed away. And uh, when Joe flew back to Long Beach, Mr. Ginn, this is Joe Carducci talking, Mr. Ginn, who was always helping us out of some jam, uh, came to get him at the airport and says, so you're back for the funeral. And that's how we Ooh. found out. Ouch. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's, uh, things were really looking up for the Minutemen, too. They had just finished a tour with REM. I found a website that has, like, every REM tour date listed on it and, like, a set list. Uh, the first date was November 22nd, 1985 in Tallahassee, Florida, but it was actually cancelled uh, because Hurricane Kate tore the roof off of the Civic Center they were supposed to play at. And uh, the last date was uh, December 13th, 1985. Some of the, the dates have the capacity listed, like, and some of them are like 1,500-seat venues. Yeah, they were playing big crowds, and yeah. I, in a wailing of a town, there are a couple of quotes talking about you know, the band realizing who they were actually going to be playing for because they didn't really know who R.E.M. was. They just knew that it was some band on a label IRS had asked for them to play. Hmm. And uh, George Hurley was one of the few guys in their circle of friends that had like MTV. Oh, yeah. And they they see a video for R.E.M. And it's blowing their mind that it's like, a band that has a video on MTV, that's who they're going to go um, going to go play with. And, I mean, it's to R.E.M.'s credit, they were the ones who fought against their label to have the Minutemen play with them. They were fans. They were a fan of, of art, a uh, fan of music, um, and they saw what we all see in the Minutemen. And even the promoters or the record labels or, or whatever wouldn't even put the Minutemen on the posters because wow. they were like they were like protesting about how rem basically just demanded that uh, the minutemen open for them so hats off to them yeah i think they were definitely using their influence to to help some other bands get a leg up because i noticed on that website before the minutemen uh they had uh that this band true west on a bunch of dates do you know them i don't kind of from that paisley underground scene and before that, they had the three o'clock on many dates, which used to be called Salvation Army. Who had a record out on New Alliance, I believe, yep, too. They did, yeah. One of the first New Alliance releases. So they were definitely, you know, trying to help out their friends. Yeah, I was actually, I had a buddy in town this weekend, and we were we were rapping about REM, and we were kind of talking about like what is our cutoff, and we both decided that we basically we like REM up to the album Green. And then we both kind of like the album Monster, yeah. but nothing else. I don't really know anything after that, if I'm being honest. So, but Yeah, well, us, us either. Yeah, I, I would say the same for me. The other thing, too, like uh, REM's In Wailing of a Town, um, the story goes that even like the road crew was against the Minutemen. And they're like, you know, I guess they were getting paid like 250 bucks a show, something like that. And you had to, you know, the road crew was like, okay, if you want lights, it'll be 25 bucks. If you want this, it'll be 25 bucks. If you want this, it'll be 25 bucks. And the min men were like, 
Just give us white lights and sound. Yep. That's it. That's all we need, man. <laughs> that scam's not going to work on the Minutemen. No way. They jam Econo. That's right. All right. So did you want to talk about the, the artwork and the songs, Brent? Yeah, I do. All right. History lesson, part two. So we mentioned before that there's a, a mic side and a D side on this one. There's some great artwork. Where do you want to begin? I want to begin with a Michael Azarad quote from Our Band Could Be Your Life that I really liked. Can I spiel Let's it for it. you? Please. The music on three-way tie is more eclectic than ever. There are odd psychedelic interludes, tidbits of Spanish guitar, visionary rap and roll, a spoken word piece, Latin rhythms, and a literally telephoned-in track, and a great straightforward rocker. The politics are clear, the tips of the hat copious, the band chemistry obvious. That's interesting. I, I mean, it's kind of a bit contrary to what Mike is spieling in A Wailing of a Town. Interesting. Yeah, well, you know what, Ryan, like, I really like this album, and uh, I really like listening to it. I listened to it, like, a ton this week. Maybe if we talk through the tracks, we can uh, see where we both ended up with it. Yeah, that's a good one. Let's start on, uh, start at the start. Track one on side one, The Price of Paradise. We should, you referenced it, Ryan, but we should tell people who don't have this on LP, uh, the sides on the vinyl are listed as side D and side mic. Yeah, side one is side D, so the first six tracks are on side D. What do you have for The Price of Paradise? Well, I called it like kind of a bittersweet war song, and I mean, I, I can't think of anything other than D. Boone's brother based on that uh, story that Linda Kite told uh, on the interview for My First Bells. That I don't know if that's actually what it is about, but that's what rang true for me. Yeah. Well, he says in the song, My Brother the Soldier, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if how it could be anything other than that. I'm just guessing, but it's pretty obvious, I think. Yeah, so this one's credited solely to D. Boone. I just wrote, it's an amazing opener, one of the best anti-war songs ever written, in my opinion, and there's been some really good ones. Uh, it's a killer D. Boone vocal, one of his best vocals, I think. Honestly, it's one of my favorite Minutemen songs. There's a really good Meat Puppets version. Have, have you heard it? No, I didn't know that. What record's that on? It's on a bootleg. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it's really good. They do it, you know, a pretty, you know... Authentic? Authentic version of it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the opening solo rules. And speaking of the Minutemen, Ryan, there's a Tom Tricoli story where he talks about how he was touring with the Meat Puppets, and uh, he was dozing in and out of sleep. Kurt, I think, was driving and cranks up the Price of Paradise, and they screech to a halt. They were at the exact spot where the accident happened. And, no uh, way. Yeah, he said you could still see the skid marks. It was two weeks after the accident. Oh my gosh. Imagine that. I love The Price of Paradise, man. It's one of my favorite Minutemen songs. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, then we go to uh, Lost. Speaking of the Meat Puppets. Uh, they did this one before. I think you mentioned, we might have talked about the Tour Spiel EP. I think we mentioned it on the Flip Your Wig episode. We were talking about Reflex a little bit. It might have been the last release on Reflex. Or one of the last ones came out in, I think, in 84. I'm pretty sure the tour spiel on Reflex is when Bob Mould and everyone else packed her in on Reflex. Yeah. It's also on Post Mersh Volume 3. It's a fairly different version of the song than this one. And the recording's not so great. It's like a, I think it's a 
bootleg recording actually that they released and this one fits the theme too because it is a political song you know there's the lyric i've grown tired of living in nixon's mess oh yeah it's a great cover the quote inside the album says thanks meat puppets for obvious inspiration and plus letting us do another version of lost yeah it's a really good cover like they definitely put their own spin on it if you think about the meat puppets version it's more of a it's way more country sounding and it's funny you know like we follow you don't probably see this too much because you're not a social media guy but we follow the meat puppets on instagram and coincidentally we do with the podcast oh (laughs) (laughs) and uh i'm like i do not (laughs) you, you probably don't know what a regram is but it's like you know basically when you repost something that someone else posts Oh, yeah, you, like, forwarded it on or something? Yeah, and the Meat Puppets regrammed a video of Jack Black, you know, the actor? Like, yeah, oh, Tenacious yeah. D. And he's, like, he's blasting this song, the Meat Puppets version, and doing, like, his Jack Black thing, where he, like, plays air guitar and stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was pretty funny. All right, are we on to uh, the big stick? Yep, another D. Boone. Another anti-war song, I would say. Yeah. This is like a political folk song. It's got a little bit of a Latin flavor. I've always loved the solo to this song. It's definitely about, I mean, well, I shouldn't say definitely. My take on it was it's about the U.S. exerting its its power and influence globally and maybe not third world countries, but other countries where it wants to, you know, have influence over political leaders. Yeah. Got to stop the fall of uh, the rise of communism, man. <laughs> brutal yep. and speaking of war and politics the fourth song on side A is Political Nightmare what an interesting song man this is one one of those ones where I really deliberately considered it for the first time ever after hearing it you know God knows how many times what a weird song but it's really interesting it's just one of those ones I would normally probably just tune out yeah it was kind of like not background noise, but almost like just a little transitional snippet between the real songs or whatever. Yeah. But then, but actually deliberately listening to it, like the lyrics, you know, like another invasion. Yeah. It's a weird song, but it's good. It's a Kira Watt co-write, one of yeah. a few on the on the record. Uh, so interesting that it made it onto side D, but, you know, it fit with kind of the theme of the, the politics. One of my best, or sorry, one of my favorite D. Boone songs is on Side Mike, so hey, whatever. Yeah. I wrote the first part sounds almost like a flag-type instro. D's kind of spieling over top of it, like, another invasion? Sympathize with who? (laughs) Yeah. And then it kind of shifts gears into a bass riff, and there's some more D spiels, and then D peels off a gnarly solo, and there's some really uh, badass Watt finger-popping they go into that woke up screaming part where they're screaming <laughs> and they're the, the guitar tones like really like gin-esque it's a really different tone for the for the Minutemen. and uh, then there's another d boon face melter and then uh, some weird ghost sounds at the end and uh, that shitty gated kick drum that you can hear throughout the whole album yeah and then uh, uh one too many votes satan won the song's yeah. over <laughs> Yeah, Watt mentions in A Wailing of a Town, too, about how the production, like, it just has 
like really wonky digital effects on there that Ethan James slapped on there. And like they recorded this record in 46 and a half hours, it says on the back sleeve. And then it also says now 16 track at $25 an hour. And that's a total, total poke at Ethan James for raising the price at Radio Tokyo. And, and uh, also in retrospect, Watt commenting about how like the effects on this record are not that good. Yeah, the kick drum sounds terrible. Yeah. Courage, the fifth track is a D-Boon, right? Total rocker. I, I've always liked it's, the ballot result version of this song better than yeah, the studio version. This is the song that I think of when I think of three-way tie, like as, you know, I don't know, the hit or whatever. Yeah. But I don't know, like, as I said, other songs are sticking out this, this listen. But this is like, you know, the easiest one to get into. Yeah the most i guess traditional late period if there's such a thing traditional late period Miniman song it's kind of like a post merch type of song so it's good though yeah last song on side one uh the ccr classic have you ever seen the rain of course written by john fogarty it's never really moved me if i'm being honest this version or yeah this version it's it's you know, really slow it's slow it's just it's just kind of whatever for me. Uh, Mike Watts playing acoustic guitar on this one, so that's kind of interesting. I, I kind of always thought they should have done Fortunate One instead. Oh, there's a ton of CCR songs that the Minutemen would have killed. Like, it would just been awesome. Yeah, I just mean for the politics. Oh, yeah, it would have fit on this record for sure. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I read some reviews of this album from the era online this week, and lots of people noted this as an album highlight, so... It's not for me, but some people really like it. Yeah, it's not my favorite on the record for sure, but it is, I mean, it fits. We're going to flip it over and hear the best cover on the album, in my opinion. (laughs) Well, there's a couple at least on this this B-side, so let's go to the mic side. Uh, Track number one is The Red and the Black by BOC, originally. Written by Bouchard, E. Bloom, and Perlman. You want to hear what I wrote? I bet you I know what you said, but let's hear it. I wrote fucking A, man. (laughs) (laughs) Mike Watt just burns on this track. Like the vocals, man. This is Mike Watt's, like one of his best vocals. Yeah. Like when I think of Mike Mike Watt singing, I think of like that Firehose song, Walking the Cow, which is actually a Daniel Johnson song on uh, Flying the Flannel. Like that's Mike's vocal style that you hear most often. Or like Big Train or something like that. But he really yeah. he really belts this one out and the guy can sing. Yeah, Mike can sing, but you're right. He does have a bit of a unique style, especially on his solo records and yeah. the Firehose stuff, for sure. But I mean, even this vocal style for Mike on the Red and the Black, it's way different than early Minutemen Mike Watt playing with a pick vocals. Yeah. Way different singing back then too, right? So Mike has had a few different phases of in his vocals. I, I love it. I love the version. Um, I, I, I wrote, this is like almost like a Mike Watt signature song. Like I bet he closes his set with this a lot. Um, you know, it's on, uh, it's on the Firehose live totem pole EP. It's on that ring spiel tour 95 album that just came out a couple years back. He played it two years ago when I saw him. Yeah. I bet he plays it a lot. He, uh, is credited in the liner notes as playing stun guitar on this track you know what that is hey i don't what is that 
It's like a made-up style by BOC members to describe E. Bloom's guitar parts. <laughs> they say it a oh. lot on, on, like, BOC albums. E. Bloom is credited as playing stun guitar. And you thought that I would know that? <laughs> if anybody wants to hear the original of this, it's on Tyranny and Mutation, which came out in 1973. There you go. I'm pretty sure I only know this cover song and Don't Fear the Reaper. Oh, you know Burning for You. What, is that a BOC song? Yeah, written. Uh, the lyrics were written by Richard Meltzer, who uh, we'll be talking about probably hmm. uh, at some point here. I guess I've got some BOC listening to do. You sure do. How about the spoken word piece? Yeah, the liner notes to the album uh, say thanks to Hank Rollins for inspiring it. And uh, <laughs> Ethan James also provided the actual battlefield recordings from the Vietnam War for this song. I think he got them off of a cassette from Soldier of Fortune magazine. That's what it says in the liner notes. Wow. Well, it's obviously a take on Family Man from the Black Flag Family Man record, right? Yeah. Written by Mike Watt. How about No One? Some rap from the Minutemen. Yeah. Written by Kira and Watt. Sounds like early rap. Very innovative for its time. Yeah. Especially for, I mean, a trio of white punk rockers. Yeah. You know, this is some some dudes from Pedro, uh, not really known for rap. How about Stories? Uh, another Kira Watt co-write. It's a really nice song. I love the acoustic guitar and the bass interplay, uh, especially in the middle part. Very DOS-esque. Yeah, this is the one. This is yeah. the DOS song for sure. This song, and you know what? D. Boone, he's really, really singing nice on this song. Yeah, it's a really good song. This one is uh, one of the ones that give you the goosebumps, for me anyways, still. Yeah. What Is It? Another Kira Watt track. Thanks on the inside to Glenn Mont for the use of his Spanish acoustic guitar, which you can hear prominently on this song. Yeah, both on stories and this song. Yep. Six track, Ack, 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 written by some band. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just teasing you because I know you're a big fan. 26 seconds of uh, pure punk rock. Yeah, originally by the urinals. Written by Tally Jones and Johansson. Uh, track seven, Just Another Soldier. Written by D. Boone. I just wrote I like it, but it's not super memorable. No, I I really like this one. Do you? Yeah, I don't know why. It, it kind of got its hooks into me this week. Track eight, Situations at Hand, Kira Watt. Uh, it's a minute of noise and then a 30-second rocker with another blazing D. Boone solo. It's a neat song. One of the interesting things about it is, in the credits it says, Joe Biza on leads for the first two phases, which is like the noise part that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Track nine, Hitting the Bong. It's a D. Boone instrumental, more Spanish guitar, and they thank Joe Carducci for the title on the liner notes. <laughs> and we end with another cover, Rocky Erickson's Bermuda, uh, which... Originally came out on a single in 1977. B-side was the interpreter. It came out on Virgin in the UK and Rhino in the US. And it's interesting because it was recorded over the phone by Dirk Vandenberg, who we've talked about before, uh, released uh, an album on New Alliance Records as a member of Tragic Comedy, and some stuff on Happy Squid in the band The Rub. He played on the track Take 5D, uh, Double Nickels. He played on the Toe Jam on Buzzer Howl. And I believe he shot the cover of Double Nickels, right? Yeah, that's right. It was Dirk Vandenberg who was uh, 
he was like crouched in the back seat or whatever taking yeah. that picture. So really interesting stuff. Interesting. A lot of Watts lyrics were written by uh, Kira. They were going to work with Richard Meltzer, who apparently was one of their heroes. He had given Watt 10 lyrics to write music to, which D. Boone took with him uh, when he left on the, you know, in the van. Right. Uh, Richard Meltzer is often credited with inventing rock criticism. He wrote a lot of lyrics for BOC. Uh, if anybody wants to hear an, a re, you know kind of a snapshot of what Richard Meltzer did musically, um, there's an interesting compilation. I call it a compilation called Tropic Tropic of Nipples. There's like an original version and then a complete soundtrack. It's called, and it's got uh, him singing with the band Smegma. Uh, Robert Pollard from Guided by Voices is on it and does some stuff. And uh, Richard Meltzer was in the band Vom. Do you know them? V O M. I've read the name. I have no idea what they sound like. Really early punk rock sounding. Uh, Metal Mike from Angry Simones was in the band. Vaughn. Okay. I think that's why I know it, because I'm, yeah. I'm an Angry Simones guy. You can probably find them on, like, those Killed by Death comps or, like, Bloodstains across wherever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Their, their big hits were, like, Electrocute Your Cock, which you really <laughs> owe it yourself to hear. To, <laughs> owe it to yourself to hear if you haven't. And uh, Too Animalistic, which later became a angry simones track how about the uh artwork love it the only thing i love better than the d boone painting on the front is uh the photos of the band <laughs> yeah i i was trying to, i was trying to pick a favorite photo well i guess we should we should actually talk about the cover yeah it's like to me when i see this i think of like uh it's like a trophy hunter lodge i, I think of it as like a uh you know a, a club for like Ex servicemen. Oh, like uh, we we, we call, we call it, them uh, legions here, legion halls. It, yeah, I was I was trying to think about what you would call them in the states, but we call them legion halls here. Yeah, yeah. I like that uh, Georgie is listed as a dude slash member of local three fifty seven. Yeah, I know you'd like that union man. I do like that. Yeah. <laughs> D is a singer activist, and Mike Watt is an anti war sympathizer. Then you've got like. It looks like a coffin draped with a U.S. flag kind of thing, you know? Yeah, well, don't you think it's... This, to me, looks like the ledge above, like, a fireplace. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And, and then they've got the American flag put on that. I don't know if you'd call that the hearth. I don't know what you call the, the top of a fireplace. And then some photos, some medals, grenades, bullets, and then there are three heads, like, mounted on the wall. Yeah. It's an awesome cover. Totally. But if you flip it over, the pictures pictures are pretty darn good, too. I gotta go with George for best picture, man. It is so <laughs> yeah. awesome. I, I mean, yeah. I've seen this a thousand times, and it still makes me laugh every time yeah. I see it. Yeah. It's the best. The hat, the shirt, the, uh, the double bird. <laughs> a, yeah. An actual bird on one hand, and then <laughs> the middle the finger. <laughs> it's just awesome. <laughs> And the, and the shitty grin on his face is just amazing. Yeah. I think he's wearing like a swatch as yep. well. Well, he was a surfer dude, man. Oh, for sure. You got uh, Mike Watt in full Castro mode. Definitely. And that's on purpose too. Yeah. That was a big that was a big move in the summer of 85 for Watt. I don't know what that magazine is that he's holding, but... Live Aid, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Backstage, Live Aid. I think that's Madonna. And, I mean, Madonna features 
prominently in some later Watt stuff like Chaconi Youth and whatnot. Yep. So I don't know if that is a uh, foreshadowing there. You know, just now that we're just talking about the pictures and we're we're joking about Georgie, you know, not only is did George not really get a uh, a credit, I mean the insane George Hurley drums, they're not really on this record, right? Good point. Yeah. Then this uh, awesome D Boone pick, where he's just laughing his ass off, pulling like uh, some ice cubes out of an ice cube tray. Yeah, I wonder what was going on there. Mixing some drinks, I bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, looks, it looks like a good place to be, that's for sure. Yeah. Did we cover everything off on the credits? I think so, pretty much. Yep, more or less. Anything that matters. Uh, he do, They do thank Harvey Kubernick for his spiel. Yeah. What spiel is that? I don't know. I can only assume that it's it's got to be like one of the random blips of noise with with words at some point maybe it's in political nightmare uh maybe i don't know i didn't i wasn't able to pick it up early versions of this like the first pressing came with a ballot yeah man do you have it i don't i would love to have an original but i've just got kind of the the words from the ballot from the uh the wailing of the town they reproduced it in there Okay, so what was the the notion behind the ballot? The ballot was they were going to have, like, the next record was going to be a triple LP called Three Dudes, Six Sides, Three Studio, Three Live. That was the next Minuteman record, and they were basically asking people to write in for, like, suggestions, and then this triple album would be the ballot result. Like suggestions of which songs they wanted to be have live versions of? Yeah, so what it says is, uh, do you want me to read you the ballot? Yeah. Let me read you the ballot. So, because I'm, I'm, uh, there's only one way to tell it. It says, comrades in music, we can make democracy work, at least for ourselves. In today's mechanized society of clock punching, suburban, urban, commuting, people of conditioned response, not all is lost. You can take history in the direction of the Minutemen into your own hands. The challenge has been put forth. In the summer of 86, the Minutemen are going to record a triple album titled Three Dudes, Six Sides, Three Studio, Three Live. You, comrade, will vote on 30 songs we have recorded in our productive past. That's right. You can choose the 30 songs you want to hear live. The deadline is April 1, 1986, to mail your ballot, one song, one vote. Very democratic. Very. And I think they were handing these out at gigs, too. Yeah, I didn't see that, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I, I read that somewhere, but... Uh, should we do the ballot result? Speaking of which, let's do it. There's no dead wax. Oh. Oh, yes, there is. Good call, eh? Yeah. All right, so here we go. On side D, it says, Let's say that fear is a man's best friend. And then side mic, it says, this period's most popular courtroom drama. And you should note, too, on on the LP, side mic, there's a photo of the three dudes. And it almost looks, I don't know what they're looking at. It looks like they're looking at a ticker tape. They're, and it's strung across there, over their shoulders and necks. Hurley's got the unit in full bloom. 
Watts rocking a plaid. It looks like D Boone has got something else in his hand, but he can't tell. Anyways, that's on the LP. Okay. Good call. That was a close one. Yeah. On to the ballot result. Ballot result. I know I know you won't uh, agree with me on this one, but for some reason the song that just keeps jumping out at me is Stories actually. It's uh it's a little tender ditty. You know, D Boone is singing it's just killer and the Watt bass, which is all kind of dose like, is killer for me. But I'm interested to see what you would say. Uh, well, that's a really great song, and I I do love it. But personally, I think the Price of Paradise is one of the best songs D Boone ever wrote. Myself personally. Yeah, I'm happy to defer to your choice, but I will stand stand firm at Stories being my favorite one on the record these days. But I'll tell you. I'm going to listen to this record more. Me too. And I think that more songs are going to stick out to me than they have before, and I'm happy for it. Speaking of records, Ryan, that I'm going to listen to more of, especially in the next week, what is next week, Ryan? It's definitely time for a, a Brant a Brand Band classic. It's SST 59, Sonic Youth Evil. Hot damn. Yeah. I'm a mid to later era Sonic Youth fan, so it's time for me to dig deeper into the early stuff, and I need you to take me to school. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.